Hello everyone, welcome back to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions you may have about meditation practice and practical Buddhism. I was asked what I meant by this term practical Buddhism. Um, there was a concern that I was I was implying there was parts of Buddhism that was impractical. Uh, but I think that might be a, just a, a matter of not being a native English speaker. Practical Buddhism is in contrast to theoretical Buddhism. And it's not the Buddhism that is practical or theoretical, it's about how you apply it. So you can approach Buddhism from a theory or philosophy point of view, and you can think about it and debate about it and try to understand its truths uh, intellectually, comparing it even to other philosophical systems. Or you can put into practice and try for yourself the techniques and methods that are used. And the latter is what we call practical Buddhism. So we're not looking for questions that are theoretical, curiosity, philosophy, metaphysics. But if you have practical questions about your life, something that affects you and something that is of great concern and importance in your life. That's what we're looking to answer here, to help with here. So as usual, the first 15 minutes will be an opportunity for people to post their questions. If you have a question, post it anytime. You can post it later as well, but we'll start answering questions at 15 minutes after the hour. And in the meantime, after you've answered, asked your, after you've asked your question, we'd ask that you join us in silent meditation to prepare ourselves to get in a good frame of mind for the listening to the Dhamma. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
Okay, 15 minutes is up. Now, from here on, we will begin to answer questions. If you have more questions, you can post them in the chat at any time. And from here on, we'll close the chat down. So anything that is not a question will be removed, just to keep it clean and focused. If, if you don't have a question, just close your eyes. Stay mindful. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. In the Satipatthana Sutta, we read, When sitting, he discerns, I am sitting, and we label sitting. Would it be correct to infer the following? When you breathe in, you discern, I am breathing in, and we label it as in-breath. That is, theoretically change the rising and falling of the abdomen to the fact that you know and are aware that your body is breathing in or out in the present moment and label it accordingly? No, breathing in is a concept. There's nothing going in or nothing going out. Going out, that's not an experience. Sitting can be understood as an experience because it's a the, the sensation of the posture. Our posture involves tension and so on. Breathing in, breathing out is not the best way to develop vipassana. It's a much better way to practice samatha. Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, is t technically usually categorized as samatha meditation. So to practice it as vipassana, you have to focus on the actual experiences, the datus. So to... To 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 infer from the sitting that you can you can also say breathing is not the 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 best um, comparison because then you're trying to say not instead of saying sitting but instead of saying rising and falling. Now the reason why we say rising and falling is because it very clearly is an experience and it's far superior for vipassana than saying breathing in and breathing out. You could argue that maybe it's superior to saying sitting because sitting is kind of conceptual. But sitting is okay, again, because it is the, the experience of the tension. Uh, what we call sitting is the um, feeling of the body, the feeling and how we know that we're sitting is because of the feeling of the body. For the the breath, Rising is an experience of one of the four elements. So for anapanasati, if you wanted it to be uh, vipassana, you would have to focus on one of the four elements. So it wouldn't be in or out. That's a much better, that's much more likely to lead you to samatha, to tranquility, to conceptualizing. Uh, it would be the heat or the cold or the pressure. And the pressure here is the pressure in the stomach that we're focusing on. So the rising and falling is far better than breathing in, breathing out. Uh, technically, you could argue that breathing in refers to that cool feeling and breathing out refers to that hot feeling, but it's not likely to practically be the case. It's much more likely to be a conceptualization of something going in and something going out because it's inaccurate. Nothing is going in and nothing is going out. Not experientially. Experientially, there's feelings not the breath entering the body, but the feeling that arises, the coolness, the heat, pressure, and the, and the uh, release of pressure.
If I let every thought come into my mind and mess around with anything they want during my meditation, then when am I going to tame my mind? Didn't Buddha say, those who control their mind will be free from the bonds of Mara? Yeah, control isn't really the right word. Ye jittang sanyame santi sanyam sanyame santi mukhanti mara bandana sanya sang sangya ya means taming i think it is in regards to taming the mind uh so it i mean you you you, you can't take such um teachings too literally in the sense of thinking that that should be your entire practice the buddha is saying yes of course someone who tames their mind uh, or uh, pacifies the mind it's kind of uh, tranquilizes in a sense i'm not sure the exact meaning of the pali um will be free from the bonds of mara but the question is how do you practice to do that and to talk about practicing to do that requires uh, a lot more steps now um you shouldn't let everything that comes into your mind mess around but you also have to be careful not to conflate thoughts with what we might call emotions or in buddhism we call hindrances thoughts are not actually a, a hindrance thoughts are not a sign of of a mind that is well okay they might be a sign of a mind that is uncontrolled untamed or has been in the past but they're not the state of being untamed they're just a consequence and so they're not actually a problem thoughts are not uh, inherently problematic but uh, when you talk about uh, letting them mess around you're actually kind of conflating the two because thoughts don't mess around with you your reactions create the mess. And that's the letting. When you let uh, reactions arise based on the thoughts, that's where the problem comes. And of course you shouldn't do that. That would be the opposite of taming the mind. Taming the mind comes from, well, it can come from forcefully con uh, focusing the mind on a single object and ignoring distractions or discarding distractions or that sort of thing but that's only temporary that's not truly being tamed you have to become tamed through wisdom panyaya parisujati you become pure your mind becomes pure because of wisdom and it's that purity that leads to the mind truly being tamed um so what you should be doing is cultivating awareness and understanding about the thoughts as being impermanent suffering and non-self in the se in the important sense that therefore they're not worth clinging to they're not worth reacting to they're not worth judging they're not worth getting upset about it's not worth getting disturbed by the fact that you're thinking this or thinking that and when you see that clearly while well, your mind becomes well tamed you could say maybe well-controlled, but I don't think the word is controlled, and I don't think the Buddha ever really used that word, um, or, or rarely used that kind of idea, just because it's not in a long-term sense helpful. It's actually usually related to delusion and thoughts of self and ego.
is mindfulness when we note the activities that we are doing? For example, is it sufficient to say typing at computer, standing up, eating apple, etc.? So you want to focus on the actual experience at computer has nothing really to do with the experience. That's just, um, you might say, details or it's the, the extrapolation, the conceptualization of what you're doing. But typing can be a description of an experience because there's the feeling of typing. Um, standing up can refer to the feeling of standing up. Eating, but eating apple is not, you've you've lost the the actual experience because you don't experience eating an apple you experience the chewing you experience the taste and apple only arises as a concept in the mind which you could note seeing or thinking or uh, liking disliking not swallowing so it's important to make that distinction this the eating is is proper it's it's adequate but eating apple is 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 mistaken. Typing at computer is mistaken because that's not relating to the experience anymore. It's conceptual about the computer. The experience has nothing to do with computer. That's just when you feel it, that feeling reminds you of the idea of a computer because it feels like a computer, as it should, because it's a computer. But that's all conceptual. That's not what you're actually experiencing. The experience is just of a, rem- a memory, a reminder a recognition, sanya, a recognition of it as being a computer. But that's only a recognition, that's not the actual experience. Would you talk about physical pain from long sits? Ignore it? Find a better posture? Well, first of all, you should do walking and sitting together. It's going to be much more sustainable in the long term. So do half walking first and then half sitting. And that'll probably help with this issue of instead doing long periods of sitting. Uh, The only time you should really do long walking and long sitting is if you're engaged in intensive meditation practice because the length isn't going to somehow magically make you mindful and and definitely isn't going to magically make you mindful the rest of the day. So if you spend a lot of time during the day not being mindful, doing things other than practicing mindfulness, then the hours are mostly just going to be wasted. You're much better off doing, say, twice a day or even three times a day, a little bit shorter. But as you start doing more and more per day, then you can lengthen them because the quality is going to increase. But um, talking about pain... You can, well, you should never ignore experiences. That's kind of the opposite of mindfulness. You should confront your experiences, face them, try to change your attitude about them, try to learn to experience them without reacting. So pain is, of course, a big one. Pain is something that we normally think about as being a problem. So yeah, we either try to find a way to ignore it, to to overcome the uh, experience or to run away from it and both of those are problematic because well pain like every well like well suffering in general is not something you can escape in life and if that's your attitude to try and escape it or to uh, 
distract yourself from it, then you're never going to be free from it. It's always going to come back. And in fact, it gets worse because you feed into the aversion. You feed into the need to fix, the need to solve, the need to be free from the experience. So ideally, what you want to do is to take the pain as a meditation object and come to see that it is not actually the issue. And the issue is that you're clinging to something that you shouldn't be clinging to, and the clinging is causing you stress and suffering. But practically speaking, that's a hard realization to come to all at once. And so temporarily, it's beneficial, especially in the beginning, to adjust when the pain becomes overwhelming. And just to do that mindfully, you can say wanting to move, wanting to move, moving, moving. And then slowly, slowly, you do you continue to do this. I mean, first you would note the pain as long as you could. Eventually you're able to note the pain longer and have less and less of a need to change positions, which is empowering. I mean, that is true. The true power of mindfulness is to free you from the suffering that comes from reacting to things. When I'm anxious, I fidget and pinch myself with my fingernails without realizing it. How do I deal with this habit? Yeah, just be mindful of it. Old habits are hard to break and are hard to be free from. You can't really break them. We would say are hard to break. That's the expression, but it's not really accurate because you don't actually break habits. You uh, you slowly, slowly change your habits. There's different ways to change it, but the best way to change your habit without creating newer bad habits like aversion or self-hatred or frustration or stress is to face them, to learn about them, become more familiar with what's going on, become more familiar with the anxiety. And as the anxiety is released, then the fidgeting is reduced. Um, be mindful of the fidgeting and the pinching as well. It kind of sets you, puts you in a place to be aware of, of the process by which the mind triggers the pinching and the fidgeting and becomes disenchanted by it or disinterested in it, kind of fed up with it in a sense because it's not actually beneficial. So don't try to break your habits. Try and change your attitude towards them and try to learn to face them and become more familiar with the whole process by which the habits arise. That's what changes the mind. I've got an intellectual understanding of my own addiction patterns through mindfulness and journaling. How should I break these cycles, though, if they are ruining my life? Well, you have to start by fo focusing on the idea that something is ruining your life because that perception in and of itself is is based is a, a disliking mind. I mean, it's just feeding into uh, further unwholesomeness. It's not helpful to hate something. It's not helpful to feel something is is a problem just because something could objectively be deemed to be a problem. Um, it doesn't actually help for you to perceive it that way, if that makes sense. Like intellectually, you can 
appreciate that something is a problem, that's okay. But when it actually is experienced as a problem, that involves disliking, right? And so that's habit forming and that creates greater problems. It actually feeds into addiction as well because disliking things is unpleasant. And because of the unpleasantness, you crave for something more pleasant. And that leads you back to the addiction. So you have to let go of the idea that something is ruining your life, or you might even say let go of the idea that your life is something that is valuable, that needs to be not ruined. And again, it's not about, this isn't an argument about whether your life is valuable or not. Intellectually, you could accept that your life is valuable or not valuable or whatever. But when you perceive your mind as being something valuable, then you cling to it and then you get disturbed. I'm wasting away this very precious life. I feel bad about that, right? And it's that feeling bad that causes the problems. So kind of change your attitude and try and just look at experience as your life. You know, like the truth is the the cycles are your life. They're not ruining your life. They are your life at this moment. And if you don't come to terms with that, you'll never deal with them. You'll never overcome them. You'll always be in this pattern of, of antagonism where there's this problem and you're fighting against it. You're fighting against life. If you want to change life, you have to learn to, you have to become more familiar with it and you have to understand life. So understand your, your patterns. Second thing is, um, again, what I said before, the same thing applies. You don't break the cycles. This is just another example of a habit. Addiction is habit. And you don't break it. You become more uh, understanding of it, more wise about it. And through the understanding, it really isn't all that complicated. Whenever you cultivate mindfulness, the understanding frees you from the addiction immediately and quite powerfully like as though it was never there. It's just a matter of cultivating this in a systematic way. Uh, because, of course, the addiction comes back being habitual. And the solution is systematic and uh, consistent practice to change the patterns and to, to create patterns of understanding, true understanding, that will... Um, reduce the inclination towards those patterns. The, the sutta that we studied this morning in our study group, we're in the middle of, or coming to the end of studying the Majjhima Nikaya, and this morning's sutta was probably quite helpful, uh, or our discussion as well around this was quite helpful, about the difference between intellectual understanding and true understanding, and how had true understanding is what uh, changes habits. That's what allows you to free yourself from from bad habits because obviously be, them being bad habits, the understanding comes to understand that, comes to see what is bad as bad, what is good as good, without having to judge, without having to like or dislike anything. So I mean, I guess that that doesn't really give you practical advice, but it is important sort of first step to get your get your understanding correct, get your your the idea of of the solution as being not fixing and not changing, 
but just understanding. And the solution, of course, is, of course, I'm going to say that the solution is mindfulness. And I don't know if you read our booklet, but um, that might be a good place to start. You could do the at-home course that we have. That's a great second step. But yeah, the taking up of the practice of mindfulness will surely point you in the right direction at the very least. Some images about topics which make me anxious were arising and passing when I was noting the abdomen. Should I note seeing, seeing? But they were arising and passing quickly. Yeah, just not seeing even once. But um, I hope you know that you should also note anxiety. Images don't make you anxious. Topics don't make you anxious. Topics arise, images arise, and anxiety arises as a result. The anxiety arises. It's a bad habit, and well, that's not really relevant. It's just an experience, and you should note it as anxious, anxious. And again, you'll start to see what is good, what is bad. And as you become more familiar, you'll have a better relationship with these things. Usually, in in cases like this, the thing is we we are immediately inclined to take the images as or the object, like the image, as a problem. But the images aren't a problem. Just not seeing the problem. The real problem is that you get anxious about them. So again, you can't perceive it as a problem. That's the wrong way to perceive it. But in order to be free from the problem, you have to see the anxiety for what it is, become more familiar with it until you see how problematic it is and you're just less inclined towards it. How can I overcome my fears and take initial step on my goals? Well, same thing. You don't overcome your fear. You you learn about and understand what fear is and where it comes from. Uh, but in this case, of course, there's going to be the issue of your goals and having goals. Having goals is problematic, generally speaking. Uh, but I mean, it's only problematic in a Buddhist sense. It's not problematic. Well, it is problematic no matter what. Though practically, in the in the worldly sense, we don't see it that way. We would never understand how goals could be problematic. Um, but they're problematic because they involve clinging, they involve expectations, they involve desire, hopes, wishes, fears. So if you want a true answer, you have to let go of your goals as well and try and learn to live in the present, try and learn to be present and act in ways that are rational or reason, sorry, reasonable in the present. Like, what is the reasonable thing for me to do here? What is the reasonable approach? And if you live your life like that, good things will come. You'll be much more free and peaceful. It doesn't mean you can't do things that other people do, like even have a job or or work or do this or that. It just means you're focused on whatever you do and you're focused on it as being the reasonable thing to do. I severed ties to my father due to a history of conflict and abuse with him. I have cut him out of my life and feel free because of it, but other family keep reaching out to me. Should I let them go? Well, the stronger thing to do is to never cut anyone off. Uh, the stronger thing to do and, and the more free thing to do 
is to learn to deal with things that are unpleasant. I'm not talking about conflict and abuse. That's usually something you shouldn't deal with because it's not good for someone to abuse you or to to fight with you. You're not helping them by 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 giving them opportunities to fight with you, but um Inter- even even when someone is engaged in conflict and abuse, um, taking the step to completely cut yourself off is going. I mean, the, the issue really is the aversion that it creates. These the. the susceptibility, the vulnerability it gives to you. You'll always be vulnerable to those things that you cannot tolerate. So if you remove yourself from someone thinking that there's no benefit that comes to come from this, then yeah, that can be quite freeing. But um, it's much more letting go to allow things that you, you yourself are averse to to arise, to, to, to basically never take the fact that it would cause me stress as a good enough reason to avoid something, because that just makes it more um, dangerous to you, makes you more vulnerable to it, because every time it, when it does pop up, you get more and more averse to it. So freedom is not really freedom in terms of not having to experience certain things. And the reason why it's not is because the experiences themselves are not the cause of suffering. So again, if your uh, distance is because of a lack of any capacity for anything wholesome to arise out of it, that is reasonable. But it should really only be in terms of that. It should never be this person I have cut off because that's just, that that's, going beyond the reality. It should be, uh, I will not engage with circumstances or situations that involve abuse, conflict, and unwholesomeness. Just don't engage with them. Don't, don't go there. Don't, don't go to, um, don't get into that situation. Or if you find yourself in such a situation, leave. That's fine. But when you say about a person or or people, um, you you have to ask yourself, why am I cutting it off? Is it because of this fact that there is inevitable unwholesomeness on their part? Or is it because I myself cannot tolerate? In which case, you're not going to benefit from your own lack of tolerance, your own stress. The only way to be free from stress is not to avoid stressful situations or people, not in the long term. It's to get better at uh, dealing with such stress, such situations so that they don't cause you the stress. Now, the only qualifier there is that in the long term, so in the short term, there is a, another factor, another uh, aspect to this, and that is sort of the, the preliminary step, steps by which you get to that point. And that can often involve cutting all ties from from everyone even from from most people at least i mean ideally from everyone but your teacher your meditation teacher i tell people when they come to our center they shouldn't get to know anyone else at the center 
I always joke joke to them when they tell me about someone else, another meditator, and they they name this person is doing this. I say, I don't even know the names of my students. How is it that you know their their names? There's no one here but you and me. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't have any interest in in anybody else at the center. But let alone, of course, any contact with people outside, and and of course, most importantly, no contact with people who might uh, disturb your mind beyond what you're currently capable of dealing with. So ideally, to start, you seclude yourself, and that makes you better able to deal with these things that uh, disturb you, right? So I only I only give this long answer because you talk about letting go, and that's not, what you're talking about is not actually letting go. If you're talking about uh, avoiding then temporarily that can be a good thing, but um, in the long term, it's not going to not going to be beneficial. There, there, there is, I guess, another factor to this that you may be, I may not be addressing properly, and that's the artificial connection between family members, because sometimes the only reason family is reaching out to you is because you're family, and somehow that is meaningful, and it's not in and of itself, meaningful. What's meaningful is the things that your parents have done for you, the good, if your parents have done good for you, the good that they have done for you in terms of giving birth to you, giving you money and support, you know, or, or not money usually, but you know, f- things that cost money like food and going to work in order to pay the bills and give you this. And that. to the extent that they've done that, and I know in some cases, there is neglect and abuse and that sort of thing. But to the extent that they've done that, there is a connection. And that goes for all other family members. What What is the connection? Is there friendliness? Is there kindness? Is there gratitude where they have helped you? And you should, in a sense, uh, it would be, you know, it would be a wholesome thing for you to be grateful and to appreciate and to maybe think of ways you can help them and that sort of thing. But if there's not that, um, in terms of letting go, letting go of family, I think, is a part of the practice where you come to realize that I just don't have anything in common with these people and there's not really any goodness that comes. The only reason we, we keep in contact is because of our family ties. It's kind of like how friends keep in touch. We, we, we find this sort of jarring disconnect after we begin to meditate between uh, us and our friends, where we realize the reason for being friends w- was not really anything wholesome. Maybe it was because we go out drink to drink alcohol together, or to party, or to joke, or to goof off, you know, to waste our time, play games, or whatever. And uh, that just doesn't interest us anymore. And in that case, we sometimes feel like, but they're my friend. That again, that's not as meaningful as we tend to think it is. They're my family has some meaning but not the not the meaning that we usually ascribe to it so there is that factor if that's a factor in your thinking here but just be careful that you're not confusing letting go with avoiding and understand that in the long term the best i mean friends family the best is to take people as they come and most likely your your family and your friends are going to come to you not always but uh there's usually a reason why they're your family and why that you've became friends, and that usually comes back. And uh, it turns out that they are people you have to deal with, and that shouldn't be a chore or a burden. 
That should be something you take as everything else, as an exercise in mindfulness. And you try to be present and open and free. Free from the need to escape. Free from the need to change your situation. Can mindfulness lead one to become more agreeable over time and not assertive enough due to the peaceful mind state it generally produces? Assertive enough for what? Um, I don't think it makes you a pushover. There, I mean, but there's no such thing as assertive enough, I don't think. It, um, it makes you less assertive, certainly, because a lot of our assertiveness comes from anger or greed or delusion. Delusion is a big one, arrogance, conceit, ego. Fear can lead us to be assertive, uh, worry. So none of these things arise. And we usually miss that when we're being assertive. We miss the, even as meditators, we often miss that we're being assertive because of one of these things. Ego is a common one. I know what's right. I'm a Buddhist meditator or I'm a Buddhist monk or something. So we become very assertive, and it's it's very unwholesome. But um, the thing is, some some amount of being a pushover comes also from fear, greed in the sense maybe you want people to like you, um, ego as well. It can be because you have low self esteem, so you just let people walk all over you. I'm I'm bad. I'm evil. I'm wrong. I'm stupid, they must know better than me. So that also is removed. And so nobody can can intimidate you. You can never be intimidated, right? An enlightened person can never be intimidated. But um, they don't have any... There's a, a, Being assertive enough is already a problematic statement because it's not like they care if someone walks all over them. That's just they're not afraid. <laughs> And if something is is uh, going to cause them suffering, they're not afraid of that either. Like, do this or I'll do that. It's like, why would that bother me? So you do what is reasonable, you do what is right, and you don't have any concern for uh, how it might make people feel. Well, except that that sometimes plays into whether it's reasonable. And it's unreasonable to hurt other people, of course. Um, but you know, you 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 you're very clearly aware of what's right and what's wrong, and you just focus. You know that that's where your direction is, not whether someone is telling you you should do something. When it's time to do, you just do it. it doesn't matter whether someone's telling you or not. I have kidney failure and have decided to stop dialysis and die. I have seen Nibbana through practicing the light jhanas many years back. I stopped meditation and after a few cessations over the last few years, haven't been able to get into samadhi due to pain, fatigue, lack of integrity and practice, etc. How does one die well?
Well, one dies well by living well. Um, no, one dies well by... Um, by I mean, what I mean, why I say that is very cliche, but is that you, you live through the dying. The dying is a process of life. It's an experience. It's not separate from life. So not exactly cliche. What I mean to say is you live, you live through the death. Uh, in other words, you you be mindful through it. Um, it sounds like you might be a little bit uh, overly focused on what you call samadhi, and it's true that those there are certain types of samatha attainment that are hard, if not impossible, to get into with such things as pain, fatigue. Um, I don't understand about lack of integrity. But uh, yeah, that sounds problematic. That sounds like in a different category. So pain, fatigue are things you can be mindful of, right? And you'll see many instances where the Buddha would have people take the pain as an object, uh, be patient with the pain even if it kills you, or even if it feels like it's going to kill you. To see that uh, suffering is not pain, suffering is the nature of things as being not worth clinging to and the reason why we suffer is because of our clinging because of our expectation and desire and so on but as far as lack of integrity well that's much more concerning uh, and that's not something that you should excuse um, and yeah you say i've stopped meditating so I don't know what type of meditation you practiced. Um, I'll take you at your word that you've seen Nibbana, though I will caution you over the fact that there are people who claim to have seen Nibbana who most likely have not. And you don't ever want to take for granted uh, the fact that you've attained Nibbana, even if you have, even if you're sure you have. Because, of course, there's uh, further to go. There's more you can do, and it's not really a good mind state to take anything for granted, to be lazy and rest on your laurels. So you should never really take that as any kind of excuse to slack off. There's no benefit in that. If you stop meditating, there's 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 other issues. Why do you stop meditating? It's not a natural thing to stop being mindful. It, it it sounds like there might be, because of how you're describing meditation and samadhi, that you might not be practicing in our tradition, or you might be practicing the way we teach, the way we practice. Um, so you might consider to see whether this practice is more approachable, especially because it can take pain and fatigue as meditation objects. Um, so that's one thing consider taking up the practice of mindfulness which you know for that fact sickness and uh, pain and etc are irrelevant mostly irrelevant and in fact very important to be taken as meditation objects but uh, the other thing of course is um, yeah look at why you stop meditating and try and figure out what are the hindrances that are getting in the way there's aversion towards it or desire for something else craving for other things and the lack of integrity, try and clear your mind about that and be clear that that's dangerous. That uh, if you're getting, especially if you assume that you're going to die soon, um, 
it's especially dangerous because that could be something that haunts you at the moment of death and leads to stress and suffering in your future life, in the next life. So how to die well is to take it as a living experience and be skilled enough to take it as a living experience, like anything else. Like if you get in a car accident, how do you deal with a car accident? Well, the the unfortunate answer is the best way to deal with the car accident is to have been prepared for the car accident mentally, right? To have to have trained yourself in mindfulness to the extent that you are uh, able to be mindful through the pain and through the suffering. And death is the same. The same sort of thing applies. The best way to deal with death is to be ready for it. So there's an expression in Thai. They say "tiem tai kon tai." Be prepared to die before you die. That has this idea. If you're not prepared for death, there's not really any advice anyone can give you at the moment of death. So, so I mean, obviously, that's what you're doing here. You're find, trying to find, to, to be prepared. But um, being prepared is, is actually much more about focusing on the present than focusing on the moment of death. It won't be, okay, when I die, I'm going to do this and do this. Because again, that's kind of like the idea of just um, giving advice to someone who's already dying, who's on at the, at the moment of death. If you want to be ready for death, focus on now, focus on living. So yeah, the best way to die well is to live well. It's really true, actually. If you are mindful here and now, and if you have the skills to confront experiences, then death won't be something scary. How can I overcome something if I always fall into indulgence in that moment? In that moment, it's always like, this is going to make me happy, and I fall into it every time, no matter what I do. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's this idea of overcoming something. You don't overcome things. That's the wrong sort of attitude. I mean, overcome is a weird word anyway, but we use this word generally thinking how do i get rid of it how do i you know it's kind of a polite it's often kind of a, a euphemism for getting rid of something for for being free from it and that's not the attitude you should take when overcoming is still is still wrong because it has the idea of looking behind, looking past right your focus is on that state beyond it and you've never actually focused on the thing so you, you always fall into indulgence. Well, then that's your life. That's the object. That's where the solution lies. The solution will always lie in the experience. The solution to the experience is in the experience. Why? Why is that true? Because the solution involves understanding. It doesn't involve fixing or avoiding or being free from. The solution involves understanding and Understanding involves the thing that you are suffering from, because if you understood it, you wouldn't suffer from it. So don't be discouraged when you fall into things. Um, focus on all of the, the fact, all of the uh, moments, the moments where you say this is going to make me happy. Learn about those moments. 
it's not an easy the thing is it's not an easy fix there is no easy fix and the the issue is that um the solution we propose doesn't give the results that you think it should in terms of uh not not making you indulge i mean that it does in the long term but the the approach is instead to um I mean, it's much more difficult. It's like piercing a, a dark cloud or a fog. Because during the time that we say this is going to make me happy, we're not mindful. Or we're not, we don't have the clarity of mind. Our minds are clouded, confused. So it takes it takes work to change that. And it's work that is very unfamiliar. Very, I mean, to, to put it lightly, I mean, that's really not giving, doing it justice. It's so unfamiliar. It's like life after life after life, we've never done this. That's how unfamiliar it is. We've never done what we need to do in lifetimes. People don't appreciate how significant it is that a Buddha has arisen and that there is the Buddha's teaching here. It's something that we never got in all of samsara even well maybe we did some of us were lucky enough maybe to come in contact with the buddha but we certainly didn't do much about it and uh, most of us didn't have much contact with any buddha at all most likely and now we have this very rare and significant opportunity to do something that's very unfamiliar and so it should feel like that it should feel kind of awkward at first and confusing maybe and something that you something very very new very very foreign and so as a result very very empowering and and powerful and significant and and solving a problem that we've never found a solution for in all of the lifetimes that we've lived So if you haven't read our booklet, uh, read our booklet. If you haven't done the at-home course, do the at-home course. Learn about how to see things clearly, and uh, the answers will come to you. That's it, is it? Yes, Bhante, we've crossed the hour, and you've answered every question in the top tier. Wonderful. Thank you all for the good questions and for coming out to listen patiently and to learn about Buddhist teaching and the practice of mindfulness. May everyone find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. And thank you for Chris and to Chris and Jim for your help. Sadhu. Of course. Sadhu.